0: should know what to do by now. Grab your Bibles. Make your way to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. We're going to be focusing on verses 31 through 47 in our time that we have. Um, last year, or last week, last year, last week I got the strangest compliment I've ever received after a worship service. Uh, a gentleman came up to me and said, "You, you preach really good. You just preach too short. So I'm going to make that up for you today. Sometimes we entertain angels. (laughs) Originally, though, I'll be honest, I thought we would wrap up this chapter this morning. Uh, That would have made for a very, very long sermon. Uh, There's so much being talked back and forth between Jesus and the crowds here in chapter 8. As a reminder, our series is looking at the Gospels as chronologically as possible to piece them together. Uh, so we can have a better understanding of Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and what that means in our own life. And so this morning we're going to have like a little bit of a mini-series within our larger series. We're going to break this chapter up between this week and next week. And I want you to start out with me this morning looking at some bookends to this discussion that begins here in verse 31. Last week, Jesus began to address the crowds, and like we've seen going all the way back to chapter 7, there was a lot of discussion going on about what Jesus was saying and wanting to understand what he was meaning. As we came to the end of our passage last week, look in verse 30 real quick. It says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And then our passage this morning begins in verse 31, where Jesus is now addressing those who had believed in him. Now jump with me to the end of this chapter, chapter 8 and verse 59. And it says in verse 59 that so they picked up stones to throw at him. This is the same group of individuals who had believed in Jesus. They began listening to Jesus. He addresses them in verse 31. And then by verse 59, they're ready to stone him to death. And so the question that comes up is what happened? How did they go from a place of belief to a place of having murderous intentions in their heart concerning Jesus. And so that's what we're going to begin to unpack this morning, and we'll do more so next week as our, our focus this morning is a faith check. So let's read our passage, and we'll walk through it. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your wills do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray before we walk through this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is a promise, that there is going to be a day we're going to stand before you, see you in all your glory, and we're going to stand with the saints of old to praise you for what you have done. You are holy, holy, holy. When we come this time, we open your word, and Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would open up the scriptures, that we might understand you more and understand our role and our relationship with you. I pray that you be our shepherd and guide and lead us through this time. Again, we thank you that we have gathered in your name and the promise that we are in your presence and you are dwelling here with us. We ask your kingdom and will be done in each and every life that's in this room, including my own. We ask you to open our ears to be able to hear your truth, to prepare our hearts to be able to accept it. Father, we want you to continue to be glorified. We ask you to forgive us where we may have failed you. And we thank you for the love and the grace and the mercy you continue to give us. You are a faithful God. Again, be glorified in this time. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was a boy, I would go out to my granny and granddad's farm. They owned a little farm outside of Russellville, Missouri. And I would spend a week, about every summer, just going out there. And I knew every time I would go out to be with them, my granddad the week before would stock his small pond with fish because during that week we would ride on his tractor and we would go fishing and he wanted to make sure that I would be able to catch fish since I'd never really got to go fishing when we lived in the city area. And so I can remember at times you'd be throwing out a line and I don't know, I'm not really much of a fisherman, um, but I would throw out a line and then you'd see that little bobber start to bounce on the water. And as soon as it went under as a small child, I would yank that thing as hard as I possibly could because I would be so excited that I finally caught a fish. Now, if you are a fisherman, you know typically when you yank the line as hard as you possibly can, as soon as it goes underwater, you probably are going to lose the fish. And that is exactly what would happen to me. The fish would not stay on the line, and I'd always be disappointed because I let the excitement of the moment overtake me. I use this analogy because I believe this is what is happening in our passage this morning into the remainder of chapter 8. Beginning back in chapter 7, Jesus has gone to the festival of booths, and He has thrown out a line, beginning in verses 12 and running through verse 30. And we come to verse 30, and we're told, Many believed in Him. And as many come to believe in him, Jesus then shifts the conversation and shifts his attention to those who have begun to believe in him. That word believe means they began to trust him. They began to have some understanding of what he was saying. And so Jesus shifts the conversation to deliver some very hard truths after he's already thrown out the line, and he's calling them to not just believe in him, but to follow him. He doesn't yank the line, but in seeing the people's response to him, he begins delivering this truth that was hard for them to deal with, and it was hard for them to understand. And I I believe what's happening here in John chapter 8 is what we see that happened in John chapter 6 after Jesus did the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. In John chapter 6, we're told that after the feeding, the crowds that were around him were about to come and take him by force to be king. And so the people seemed to have a faith in Jesus, but it was a misconceived faith. As a Jewish child, you would grow up and you have been taught the Scriptures. You may not have got the training that other Jewish boys got, as they were being prepped to become priests, but you would have had some basic foundational truths and understanding. You would have been taught from the Old Testament. You would have been told the stories of your ancestors and the patriarchs. One of the things you would have been taught over and over again is what comes out of mostly the prophecies, but other places in Scripture that began to speak of the coming of the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, who would come and redeem God's people. And between the book of Malachi and when we come into the Gospels, there are about over 400 years of anticipation from the Jewish people for the Messiah to finally arrive. Unfortunately today, there are still Jews who are waiting for the Messiah to come. And one of the main teachings about the Messiah is actually founded to the Jewish people in verse 15 of chapter 6. They wanted Jesus to be king. They wanted to force him into a position. They believed the Messiah would come and reestablish the kingdom of Israel and the likes of King David and Solomon. That the Messiah would overthrow whatever empire the Jewish people were being held under, kept in bondage. They believed the Messiah would come and liberate them. How God used Moses when he liberated the people from Egypt. I the Messiah would come with authority, and he would reestablish the Jewish people as God had used Joshua. He would reign in righteousness, and he would have a heart after God like King David. He would bring prominence and glory back to the people as King Solomon did. When we look at Jesus' life. He did, in fact, do some of these things. He came to bring people out of bondage. He came to reveal and reign in righteousness. He had a heart for God like no one else. He would bring glory back to God's people, and they would one day live in prominence in the kingdom of God. But it wasn't how or what the people of Jesus' day expected. Because of their preconceived notions on who they believed Jesus to be, this led to their unbelief in who Jesus really was. It's much like what happened with Judas, the disciple, who would eventually betray him so when we look at our passage this morning, it seems the exact opposite of what preachers or evangelists would do today. I mean, we're told that many believed in him in verse 30. In our day-to-day, we would sign them up for ministry. We would plug them into Bible study. We would throw them out there and say, hey, let's do the work, and God is moving, and we would celebrate. Yet we find Jesus, with these individuals who believe him, he begins to challenge what they actually believe. And through our passage, it's clear they did not believe what they needed to. And we can all be in danger of this as well, making Jesus or Christianity not how God defined or how God revealed it to be. And so when Jesus addresses these individuals who believed in him, he wants to make sure they're believing and understanding the right things about him. He opens up there in verse 31. If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples. The word abide carries the meaning of remaining, of holding to, continuing, progressing to the end and being obedient. To abide in the word is to make God's word your home. It's to dwell in it. The word isn't to be like a hotel God's Word isn't to be like an Airbnb where we check in when we need to and we check in, check out when we have to or when the time is up. The Word of God is to be the dwelling place of God's people. One of the sermons, St. Augustine, said that it is all a matter of continuing. There are others who hear it, but when the battle grows hot, they declare upon my soul, should I forsake this or that for the sake of the gospel? There are few who remain true to the gospel in the face of the cross and persecution. Where can one find those who are constant? To abide is to make God's word our home. It's to live in it so we can live it out. Jesus says, if one does this, there, the end of verse 31 into 32, if one does this, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The word truth runs throughout our passage and through the remainder of this chapter. Jesus says it, in fact, seven times in our passage alone this morning. Truth carries the meaning of knowing what is real and knowing what is dependable. And this isn't the first time Jesus has taken this approach in dealing with people he be- who believed in him. In John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. It's during the feast of the Passover, and it says at that point that many believed in him. They believed in his name. But in the same moment we read, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And here we find Jesus doing the same thing. He knew the intentions of the people and what they were putting their faith in. But it was an unrighteous faith because they wanted Jesus to be what they wanted Jesus to be and not who Jesus actually was. And so this leads Jesus to drop some truth. Now, the Jewish people believe that if they're obedient to the word of God, that is what, in fact, set them free. And So when Jesus says if they're obedient to his word and remain in his word, that that will set them free because they will know the truth, this is the hurdle that he's placing before them. He is stating that his word is on the same authority and power as the word of God. Once again, we see throughout this entire gospel, Jesus is wanting the people to understand his equality with God. And if God's word was the most authoritative source for the Jewish people, and now Jesus is saying that the people must live, dwell, abide, remain in his word, he is saying that my word is equal and the same as God's, and through both will one truly understand truth and they will be set free. So our faith is to reflect the Father's permanence. Permanence means a state that is unchanging. The psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 46, God is our refuge and strength. Very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In the book of James we read that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will be brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. God's word will never change because God does not change. That's why Jesus is calling the people in his day and calling us today to live in the word of God so we might have an unwavering faith. Jesus' statement in verses 31 and 32 reveal the problem with those who believe from verse 30. In verse 33, they, they bring a rebuttal. It's a rebuttal statement, and it carries some truth, but it also carries some fiction. Some of it's false. The true statement in verse 33 is they were offspring of Abraham. It means they were descendants from Abraham. And this is true. Abraham was their father because he was the father of the Jews. But he was also told in Genesis that he would be the father of nations. And so Jesus addresses this claim that they make in verse 37. The claim of descendants for the Jewish people was a claim of ownership. It was a pride issue. They were basically stating to Jesus, Look, we came from the right family tree because of who our great, 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 grandpappy was we're not slaves they believed who their family was that that made them free and we can learn something that it is not our family name it's not our family going to church it's not our family possibly dragging us to church which saves us it is only if we have accepted Christ for who he truly is and have been adopted into the family of God which saves us but then they make also a false statement in verse 33. They say they've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, these individuals must have forgotten their family's history. The Jewish people have been enslaved to the Egyptians. They were enslaved to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Currently in Jesus' day, they are enslaved to the Romans. And Yes, they had some freedoms to worship the way they were led to worship or called to worship. But they were slaves to these nations. And they're revealing the problem because they're challenging Jesus' authority. They're challenging His Word. They're challenging the truth that He spoke to them in verses 31 and 32. Here's the thing. We cannot abide in the Word of God if we challenge the Word of God. But notice Jesus doesn't give up on them. He takes this claim of descendants and rolls with it through the domain of our passage in an attempt to get those who had an artificial belief to understand the truth. Jesus begins in verse 34 by letting the crowd understand the freedom he is offering is not a liberation from an empire, but from the wages of sin, something only he and God could offer. In reading verse 34, it may sound as if all people are doomed. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But the meaning is everyone who habitually practices or commits sin is a slave to it. And then in verse 35, he takes this idea of family, which this is what the crowd is holding on to, and he tells them those who are enslaved to sin are in fact slaves and has no, have no permanent place within the household, but the son will remain forever. And when Jesus is speaking of the son, he's speaking of himself, but the people are understanding what he's referring to, that he's actually referring to him as the son and God as his father. We know this from verse 27 of this chapter. It says, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. And so we have to understand the family dynamics within a Jewish society. The firstborn son would be given the authority over the household if the father died or he was not presently at the house. So we know that God the Father is always present, but Jesus is using this analogy of the household. He's saying, look, I am the Son who is present, and I have the authority to free you from slavery. This is made clear by verse 36. Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Amplified Bible reads it like this, then you are unquestionably... Coming to verse 37, Jesus addresses their initial comment that comes out of verse 33, and being the offspring or descendants of Abraham. Twice in this dialogue that we read this morning, Jesus brings up the issue that is looming, that he knows that the people are wanting to kill him. He says this numerous times throughout this festival, going all the way back to chapter 7 and verse 38, which is the pivotal verse of this particular discussion. Jesus points out the truth that he is speaking and doing what he has seen and heard from his father while they are speaking and planning to do what they have heard from their father. I know many of us heard the song Father Abraham. If you ever have to work with kids and you have a few minutes you need to fill, Father Abraham is a good song to go to. You get to burn out some energy on them and you send them home. Well, in the Bible, and for the Jewish people, the title father didn't always mean one's biological father or biological dad. It's frequently used to speak of an ancestor. And so while the crowd is addressing Jesus, and they're boasting that they are children of Abraham, he being their patriarchal father, Jesus comes to the point where he points out who the, really daddy, who the real daddy is, And because they aren't understanding the truth that Jesus is laying before them, he comes right out with it in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. (laughs) Gee whiz, Jesus. Not really a way to win people for the Lord. I mean, we don't go to people and say, You're of the devil. Come to Jesus. It's not really a good approach, right? But I'm sure we've all experienced the pleasure of a push mower or the pleasure of a weed eatery. You know that joy where you just got to push that stupid button about 50 to 20 times to get the oil going into it and the gas into the line. And then you finally grab the line exactly. And you're like, come on, come on, come on. And you're just yanking it and you're yanking it until so you throw your shoulder out of place. So finally it starts. This is pretty much what Jesus is doing here, beginning from chapter 7. He's been pushing the buttons of the people. He's been yanking on their cords to wake them up spiritually. It's not about what they think they know, and it's not about who they think they are. It's about their need for the Savior. And so his driving point about who the real father is, in verse 39, he's telling them, look, if Abraham were your real father, then you would act like your father, Abraham. And so how did Abraham act? Well, he trusted God at his word. He trusted God at his word without knowing the whole plan, without without understanding how it was all going to work out. Yes, Abraham stumbled. Abraham had questions, but he lived by faith. And the Bible says it was Abraham's faith in God's word which declared Abraham righteous. There There was no law of God at this point in time with Abraham. The law wouldn't be given until Moses. There was no sacrificial system in place for Abraham. There was no tabernacle or temple that he could go to to worship God. Yet Abraham was declared righteous by God because he trusted, continued, and put his faith in God's word even though he didn't understand it all the time. Abraham prayed for a legitimate child to come between from him and Sarah. And finally, that child was born in Isaac. And then you know what happened? Some years later, God came to Abraham and told him, you need to sacrifice your child Isaac. And that didn't make sense. God had promised him a child, gave him a child. And now God wanted him to sacrifice the child. But Abraham was obedient, and he trusted that God would provide. What Jesus is saying here about Abraham is that our faith is to reflect our father's nature. This is what Jesus is telling this crowd, is that you may say you are children of Abraham, but you look, act, and think nothing like him. Jesus is going to stick with this topic of Abraham throughout the remainder of this chapter. It's going to bring the crowds to a place of wanting to stone him. In Romans chapter 4, verse 12, it says, And to make him the father of the circumcised, speaking of Abraham, who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Jesus has told these people that he is the light of the world. And then in Matthew chapter 5, we're told that we are the light of the world. And how can that be? Only if we're reflecting the nature and the character of our Savior and God. People know who we belong to by how we live our life and the actions we take. This is what Jesus is telling this crowd. If they truly belong to Abraham, they will reflect his nature, which is the nature of faith. Instead, they were reflecting the nature of their true father, who is the devil. And Jesus says in verse 44 that the devil was the murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. The devil who brought the temptation into the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 led to the fall of mankind, which led to the first murder between two human beings. But the devil actually committed the first murder because he caused Adam and Eve to sin. And when they sinned, they were doomed to die in that sin. So when Jesus says the devil speaks out of his own character, it can be read that the devil speaks his native language, which is lies. So it brings a difficult question for us all. Do we reflect the character of our Heavenly Father in our life? When people see us and they hear us talk, can they conclude that's a child of God? I gotta say, there's been times in my life the answer has been no. But I pray people do. And the key for people to see us as children of God is right there in verses 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you have no, especially looking in verse 41, the crowd, believers are starting to get agitated. They're getting agitated because Jesus keeps putting out these truths to them. And they're stuck in the physical. And so their protests in verse 41 we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. If I could carry a couple meanings. We know if we were go back into chapter 7, the people were pretty familiar with Jesus. They knew where he came from. They knew what family he came from. So it's, it's possible that they knew of Jesus' birth and that his mommy and daddy had a baby before they said, I do. Second is some believe Jesus was a Samaritan. We see that in the previous verses. As Jewish people, they believe Samaritans to be half-breeds and therefore illegitimate child children. Finally, they could be stuck on this whole fatherhood thing that Jesus had been talking about. And they're sticking to their guns about being legitimate descendants of Abraham. In either case, they're getting to the point where they're not happy. And it's only going to get more heated by the time this whole interaction is over is they're going to be ready to stone Jesus. And in this interaction, Jesus takes the approach of a rabbi. It had been something that this crowd would have been familiar with in that sort of teaching style. He's talking in a way that they would be able to understand and teaching in a way they would have been familiar with. And the way Jesus does this is he does it by posing questions, and he poses three to these crowds. The first one is in verse 43. He says, why do you not understand what I say? Which could also be read as, why aren't you getting it? It's an obvious rhetorical question because Jesus answers it himself. He says in verse 43, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And this poses the problem. How are they going to abide in his word if they can't understand it or they won't listen to it? And the final two questions come out of verse 46. The first one is, which of you convicts me of sin? This is, again, as Jesus is pointing, that he is well aware of their murderous intentions that are laying upon their heart. And that's going to begin to come to fruition in verse 59. It will fully come to fruition when Jesus comes back to the Passover, and these crowds will shout out, crucify him. Final question, again, is in verse 46. He says, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe? It's another rhetorical question. Because Jesus gives the answer in verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is you are not of God. So Jesus is not holding back. And he's laying out these truths. And what it teaches us is our faith is to reflect the Father's word. Our faith is to trust God at His Word. This allows us to reflect His nature. It allows us to abide in Him. A couple weeks ago, I challenged you all to begin memorizing Scripture in order to share the gospel and gave you five passages of Scripture. I also challenged you to begin memorizing Scripture that you can use when Satan comes to speak his lies at you, that you can speak truth right back at him. And so when we go out in the world, the people of this world should see we're different, that we're not living for the world or by the world's standards. Because God's word is our guide. And God's word is our source of truth. So you watch the news. And you watch people doing interviews and things like that. And the world comes out and says. Well this is okay now. Or that's not okay now. As God's people. We go to the word of God. And we see what God has already said about it. The world is going to change its opinions and views time and time again. Our God does not. He is permanent. He is faithful. He's true. If you return to the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you don't have to do it right now. The book of Revelation reveals when the end time comes, there are going to be people just like this crowd that Jesus is addressing in our passage. They had a belief, but it wasn't in the real Jesus. It wasn't in the real God as what they manufactured. They had a belief about the Bible, but it wasn't actually founded upon the rock and it wasn't actually their source of truth. In the end times there are going to be people just like this crowd, they're going to have a shallow belief and they're going to fall into the lies of the devil. The book of Revelation also reveals there are going to be a group of individuals, a remnant is what it's called, that are going to have an unwavering faith to the point that they're going to be willing to die for it. Which one will we be? Jesus spoke truth, even if it was hard for people to hear. But he spoke truth, again, for the purpose of setting them free. From the penalty of sin, which leads to the eternal separation from God. And this is why we speak truth in the form of the gospel. And maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to understand what the gospel is. God created you and me for a relationship with him. And it is our sin that is separating us from that relationship. And we can't do enough good things to fix the sin problem. That's why Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life according to the law and standards of God. He died on the cross to take the penalties of our sin. God poured out his complete wrath upon his own son, his holy son. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show that he has the power over the death, the authority to forgive sins, and to grant eternal life. And if you're here this morning, you've yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've yet to ask God for forgiveness for your sins. You've yet to put your faith and trust in the work of Christ. Then today might be the day of your salvation. And if you need to come forward and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to come. I'll be standing right here. And you just have to come out and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I want to be forgiven. I want to go to heaven when this is all said and done. I'm going to ask Nick and Bridget to come up and lead us in a song. And I want to pray over us real quick.